0: Welcome to Episode 9 of Talk on Tech. I am Patrick Smith.
1: And I'm Josh Joseph.
0: And we are here to navigate you through the intricacies of information technology and all things Mount West Community and Technical College. Today we have some uh, announcements, uh, quite a few new ones, because we are getting to the end of the semester. So let me go ahead and get started with those. First announcement is kind of an overlap from previously, and that is... Last Monday, which was the 26th of March, started advanced registration for summer classes here at MCTC. This Monday, April 2nd, that just passed by, starts the advanced registration for summer session for all students. So that means all currently enrolled students, all students who may be coming in in the fall semester, who wants to get a leg up and take some summer classes, those are starting. Um Some other interesting pieces of information to know, April 27th, which will be right around the corner, less than a month away, April 27th is the last class day we have, last official class day. That doesn't mean graduations then, that means that's the last regularly scheduled class day before final exams start the following week. Now, the interesting thing about April 27th being the last day of class, it's also the last day a student can choose to completely withdraw from their classes. So you have up until the absolute last second. Here, just right at the threshold before you can go ahead and decide to take the plunge if you have to. And then the following week, starting April 30th on Monday, going all the way to May 4th on Friday, will be final exam weeks. So all classes will be... Be completely finished by May fourth. The following Friday, May eleventh, is graduation, and then basically one more week off. We'll go ahead and start summer session. So once you get finished on May fourth, you know that following week is going to end up being May seventh. You can have that whole nice week off there to chill and relax, and then the following week, starting May fourteenth, is when summer sessions kick in. So let me just remind anybody who's thinking about taking any summer classes here at MCTC, we have three summer sessions. Summer Session A is a 10-week session that runs from May 14th to July 20th. Summer Session B runs May 14th through June 5th, 15th. Sorry, That's the first five weeks of what was the large summer session. And Summer Session B is the first five weeks, summer session C is the last five weeks, which would be a mini-session that's June 18th through July 20th. So the possibility is there that you can mix and match classes. Maybe you take a class during the whole 10-week session. Maybe you decide to take a class during the first five-week one for the B session and one during the C session. You'd have the ability to knock out three of your classes in summer without ever having to consecutively or consistently I guess simultaneously take three classes at once they could be spread out a little bit the great thing about taking summer classes they're completely done by July 20th and you have more than a month till August 27th till fall classes would start so I I encourage anyone who's currently attending MCTC or even if you're going to think about attending later on this fall to go ahead and take some of the summer classes that can help you knock out some of your math and your English requirements, a lot of the general education requirements that we have here, and go ahead and get that taken care of. So that's kind of our little introduction with regards to our our updates for our students. Now let's go ahead and get into our stories for today. Uh, First, Josh and I have some updates to some previous stories that we talked about previously, and I'll go ahead and take the first one here. Last week, we talked about uh, one of the very last stories we talked about was that there was a, a person who is currently being charged in a in a fraudulent case with regards to a mortgage claim. Uh, they're in Denver, and basically the court was forcing this person to go ahead and decrypt their hard drive. That was at least. The directive They were going to force them to decrypt their hard drive or at least give their password so it could be decrypted. Or at that point, if they didn't do it, they would face jail time. Well, I have two stories that are updates to that because, funny thing, I mentioned that in class to my students, and then my students said, hey, well, did you hear how that ended up? So they went ahead and led me to, uh, to the update. Uh, first, let me just remind you that this person we were talking about was in Denver, they um there was a a circuit court of appeals uh the lady being charged i'm trying to find her name here uh for a second but there was a lady being charged and when she was being charged she did not want to go ahead and decrypt her hard drive uh ramona Fiscosu, you f i or f r i c o s u the idea was she, she even made it sound like maybe she didn't remember her password anymore that was a possibility no. But with court cases these days, they can sometimes drag on three, four, five years. So it may be be possible if you haven't used the machine that long. I might forget a password, too. But the point was she didn't want to decrypt the hard drive. So they went ahead and put it up the ladder. And in Denver, the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, that's kind of like the highest place you can go before you go to the Supreme Court. They tried to go ahead and say, please, can you go ahead and hear our appeal? Can you stop this from happening? And the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals said, no, we won't hear anything yet. So basically, she was going to have to go ahead and supply the password if she had it. The reason I bring all that up is, at the same time this was going on, there was another case that was also similar to that happening down in Florida. There was a guy in Florida who... um, who basically took his same appeal up to Atlanta where they had the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals because basically somebody had a a court order for him to decrypt his own hard drive as well. And it's a completely different Court of Appeals in a completely different region, being Atlanta as opposed to Denver. But the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals went ahead and stated that asking someone to go ahead and open up their encrypted hard drive is akin to asking someone for a combination to a safe and is off-limits. Because if you compel someone to unlock them, basically there may be incriminating information inside of yep. there, and that's that would violate their Fifth Amendment rights to basically plead the Fifth and not incriminate themselves. So the interesting thing about the court system is just because the Atlanta uh, Court of Appeals went ahead and said that person didn't do it doesn't necessarily mean that... Um, the denver people have to that's like saying if one mayor in a city passes a law it doesn't apply to another city but if you have a governor do it higher than you that might so if they want to take us to the circuit supreme court they could but the interesting thing was all the while this person didn't have to go ahead and break into their computer that being said how in the world did uh ramona's case end up well with her case it ended up showing down that um, there was no great big constitutional showdown for their case. The feds were able to decrypt the laptop without the defendant's help after all. What ended up happening is there was a co-defendant with Ramona. It was actually her husband, well ex-husband now, and co-defendant um, who went ahead and gave some passwords to the lawyers And with those passwords, they were able to go ahead and get into the Toshiba laptop in question and go ahead and decrypt it. And so just an idea, we said earlier, how in the world could she have forgotten the password? They took this computer from her in 2010. It's now 2012. It is quite possible that if it was for a business, I too, if I haven't typed a password for two years, if I'm not in the routine of doing it, I could probably forget it as well. But needless to say, over in Denver... They didn't have to go ahead and, and make that be a precedent-setting case because they were able to use someone else's passwords or at least get the information from someone else to open it up. So that's a nice little update to that. And hopefully when we talk to some of our other faculty here on campus, um, I'd like to talk to one of our our professors about uh, who does legal assisting. I, I want to talk to them yeah. about how these laws get set up, like precedent-setting cases and stuff because... I find this interesting and confusing all at the same time. Yeah. When you have one law being passed down here, and it's law in this land, but not in this land.
1: Yeah. The interpretation of law is a very, very, very big subject right yeah. now because of so many cases like like this and mm-hmm. just everything else. And
0: yeah. You so also have an update to a story of one I of do. ours, right?
1: Um, we mentioned uh, on the last episode, and I think maybe even the episode before that, the European Union was um, getting after uh, Apple. Corporation mm-hmm. because of their warranty coverage um basically in the European Union uh any products sold um in a nutshell have to have a two year uh, at least a two year warranty on them any mm-hmm. new any new products being sold and um if you don't know, Apple only carries a um, a ninety day to a one year mm-hmm. um a warranty with anything new that they buy you know anything if you buy it in the United States. You know, that's a you got a year basically of, of temporary Apple care in that sense, and you can you can buy more whatever. Well, I think you have
0: like ninety day phone support, and then yeah. one year if you send it in and have it.
1: fixed. Yeah, if something goes wrong with it, you can you can do that, or if something's manufacturally um, right. done wrong, they'll replace it. Um, so what they're doing is that Apple has quietly updated their warranty coverage in the European Union, extending it to the two years required as required by European Union law. Mm-hmm. The problem is. Um, Apparently, their new European Union warranty has a huge loophole through it. It says, as noted on Apple's website, Cupertino's own Apple one-year limited warranty covers defects arising after customer takes delivery, while the EU consumer law warranty covers defects present when customer takes delivery. Emphasis in the original. So, um, basically, what they're trying to do is... um, uh the, the one year limited that we have yes. in the United States only uh it, it covers defects arising after they take it um where the two year EU uh warranty covers only defects that are there when the customer buys it so only would it be manufacturer defects Whereas, oh. there are defects that can arise after you would take possession of a new iPad. Like, you bought a new iPad. Right. A couple weeks later, something go, goes wrong with it. Not necessarily you dropping it. Mechanical failure. Mechanical failure, things yeah. like that. Well, if it's something that's happened after you bought it, you purchased it, two weeks later, something goes wrong with it. It's not a manufacturer issue. It's it's something there. They'll take care of it. Whereas, with the two-year warranty coverage that they have in the European Union now, um, defects present when the customer takes delivery is very very much stipulated so that...
0: That word, when... When. Is very, very big yes, there. Yes,
1: that's what they've got highlighted in this article. Defects arising after customer takes delivery is our limited warranty. Or when. Or, and then theirs is yeah. when. So they've got after and when emphasized. So they've, uh, they're have they technically obeying the law as far as what their warranty requires of the two years. Um but uh, uh, they've found a way to well, do it. Well, what that makes sleep. it sound
0: like, it makes it sound like if you buy an iPad and you know there's a defect when you take delivery of it, mm-hmm. you now have two years to get it replaced based on that defect, mm-hmm. which sounds pointless exactly. over there. Yeah, so.
1: yeah It's uh, they were able to, um, the way that they're doing that is, um, yeah, They uh, Apple appealed the, uh, what happened was an Italian court Mm-hmm. originally find them and said right. you have to do this you have to offer it for two years it's our law
0: well plus they were they were charging italians mm-hmm. the apple care for the two year and they're trying to say why are you charging our people more money when it's already common law and should be yeah. there for free
1: yeah and i think what they're i don't know if they're adding an extra year on to the end of that because of people that bought it i think that's what they're doing but Apple appealed that fine, and they lost the appeal last week, and so now this is what quietly has happened, mm-hmm. and it's a huge um, loophole. But it's technically what they' what was needed to um, to happen, because they have to have a, some sort of coverage on it for for two years, and so wow. the, the very very much win. The word win is is, is key If there. that
0: if that's how their two year coverage works over there in general. That seems really shady, mm-hmm. I was really thinking, all oh, two years would be amazing, but if all products say you have two years to return it, if something was wrong when you bought it that that's pointless. I want to warranty when I own it for two years yeah. anywhere in tariff then so I'm
1: sure I don't think this is going to be the end of it. I'd say mm-hmm. they're still going to be arguing over the um how it's stated and, and it should actually be covering it for two years. And okay. So it'll be interesting to see. But that was a nice little um, update that just came out.
0: So. Yeah. Well, I think last week I'd mentioned, too, um, I ended up buying the new third-generation iPad. That seems to be the, the way Apple wants you to say it now. It's not an iPad 3. It's uh-huh. the third-generation iPad. Mm-hmm. And it's not
1: iPad HD, right? That's another thing people were calling it, right? No, I
0: haven't heard the iPad HD okay. thing before. Yeah, the yeah. Okay. I do know there was HD apps back yeah. in the, back in well, the day. Yeah. yeah. But, um, well, mm-hmm. one of the things people complained about was how hot it got. And so I, I really haven't found it to be uh so hot that I can't touch it. But yeah. what it reminds me of is holding a laptop, setting a laptop on your lap. Yeah. It's about that hot. Okay. And so it seems like everyone likes to take any big controversy or what they feel is a big controversy these days and throw a gate on the end. You know, from Watergate back in the day yeah. to when, Antenna Gate when on yeah. the uh, I, iPhone four, and so everyone was trying to say Heat Gate was a big issue, or now Battery Gate. Battery gate the yeah. idea that, that there was there was an article um, sometime maybe at the beginning of this week or last week where even the new iPad threes, even when it tells you it's at a hundred percent, it's really not a hundred percent. There's like ten more percent to go.
1: I can well my. I've I've had the issue with my phone before, and mm-hmm. it wasn't—part of it was the battery, part of it wasn't the battery. Mm-hmm. I've got the new iPhone 4S, mm-hmm. and I can tell you when it gets down to 20%, there's a good chance it, it will die before it gets down to even 10%. It well, happens quite a bit.
0: I haven't seen that, but what, mm-hmm. the, what they're saying basically is— It's 120%, you,
1: right? When, when it says 100—
0: well, when it says 100, it's actually only 90% charged. Okay. Because the second you take it off the charger, it jumps down to 99 in a hurry. Yeah. Um, they're saying, basically, to make sure you don't overcharge batteries, most companies... I mean, it's it's a common standard to go ahead and put in your devices that when it says 100% charged, it starts to slow down the charging okay. and make sure it doesn't fill it up too much. Okay. They were just complaining that it seemed like with as large of a battery that Apple has inside of it... Yeah. When you suddenly do your 10% like it's normally customary, that 10% shaves off a whole hour. Okay. When you say your battery's supposed to last 10 hours and only 9% of the way it charges. So, people were complaining about that. But the the part that my little story here talks about was the heat gate where mm-hmm. people were trying to say that it got too hot. Got too hot, yeah. Apparently, that's not a big deal because in walks Consumer Reports, and they gave the iPad 3 or the iPad 3rd generation as, as Apple wants it to be called now, um, glowing reviews, superb, very good, very fast. They went on to say about the, about the heat. They just went ahead and say, yes, the iPad 3 gets warmer than the iPad 2, but we didn't find those temperatures to be cause for concern. So even though people say it gets hotter and go figure, it has a much larger battery in there. it doesn't really have a new processor per se, but it has it has a new graphics core in it that has four graphics cores. So more power is being pushed out. So they don't really see cause for alarm. Actually, they rated it better than they rated the iPad 2. Hmm. So apparently Consumer Report is really uh, warming their way up to, to Apple now. So apparently, if you ask Consumer Reports, who is supposedly an independent third-party uh, testing company... Yeah heat gate is not a problem okay so Hmm.
1: well i got a short story here about um facebook tries to out google google with new search tool Hmm. um and we've been we've been talking about a little bit there's been some some battles going on between facebook and google Mm -hmm. and and um here you know especially right now where they're trying to get grounds for for money and things like that they're they're getting themselves all dug in with that also, the uh, fact
0: last week we talked about how Google is trying to break everyone's privacy that, so they can help you have as have, as intelligent searches as what <laughs> Facebook can give you.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's just it's all going back and forth. Uh-huh. Well, now there's a report coming out that Facebook is building a search engine to rival Google's, um, and it says about 24 Facebook developers led by former Google engineer Lars R- Rasmussen, I believe is how it's said. Um, are working on a new search engine according to a report in Bloomberg Business Week late last week. So, Reliable source. Uh, citing unnamed sources, the report said the project aims to enable users to more easily search Facebook's status updates, posted articles, pictures, and videos. Uh, the new search engine could keep Facebook users from jumping off the social networking site to use Google search engine, analysts noted. Um, the story goes on a little bit longer, but basically what they're saying is they're, they're trying to build a uh, a search option within Facebook, um, so that you can do like a global search as you would on Google, and it keeps people from leaving Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this comes back to where uh, Google pushed out Google Plus, and they started messing with the what Facebook has as far as like their social networking. You know, they owned that market. You know, we know we all know what happens to my, happen to MySpace and things like that. Right. So Google said, you know, we're stomping on your ground, and now Facebook's kind of countering back especially with this new IPO that's going to be coming out. Um, they're expect. I just read a th- an article where they may be um, those may be reaching almost $1,000 a share. Wow. Um, uh, but uh, with this, they're basically saying they, this is supposedly in development. This is something that they're working on. Um, the search that they have right now is not too bad. Um, as far as like if you're on Facebook and you got the search, but he, you know that's within Facebook itself. Yeah. Um, and I think they're just basically building off of that. But they've got a former Google engineer, so I'm sure he's he knows a little bit about how how they get theirs going. And um, with the money both of these companies have, this is going to be an ongoing battle for a while. Um, obviously, it's not going to be something where Facebook has their own search engine as far as a Yahoo or a Google, but they're kind of integrated it into their website. So people will just basically instead of you having a Google home page, you're gonna have a Facebook home page. So you're gonna go into Facebook and then you're gonna have your search options there. You're gonna have, you know, all of your social networking. Um and more and more things are getting tied into uh Facebook with uh the things like Pinterest and Tumblr getting tied in now. Twitter's already been tied in so basically they're they're making this all in one social networking searching research everything site so it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out well so it's very cool yep
0: well i have another article here about good old microsoft this one deals with their their xbox division mm-hmm. um says here that there were researchers security researchers from two universities who found that they could hack into a Microsoft Xbox 360, a used 360, okay. hack into it, maybe use some modding tools, look on the hard drive of said purchased after used, you know, basically a maybe you gave me your Xbox 360, Josh. I was okay. able to use modding tools to hack it, Okay, look in the original files that were on the console, and I would be able to eventually extract your credit card information because you were the original Mm. owner. So this is a report. I mean, these researchers said they've been able to do it. They basically said they've purchased from Microsoft a refurbished Xbox 360. They've pulled it off in their response. Uh, Microsoft, their general manager of security for the Interactive Business Division, said they requested the information that will allow us to investigate the console in question, the one these people supposedly stole the information out of, but they haven't received what they've needed yet. So basically at this point, Microsoft's not saying what these people claim is incorrect. They're just saying they haven't seen the proof and the evidence of things. Microsoft also went on to say... That when they refurbish used consoles, they have a process in place to wipe the local hard drives of any user data. But they also assured Xbox owners that they do not store the credit card information locally on the console, which seems to be unlikely if these people somehow got it off the console. So here's what the article basically comes down to saying. You have the ability to buy third-party tools that allow you to take your Xbox hard drive and hook it up to your computer. Uh, There's programs that allow you to save off your saves and stuff like that. This whole article basically comes down to say if you're going to be selling your Xbox 360, they think it's in your best interest to buy one of those tools to hook the hard drive of your Xbox 360 up to a computer Mm -hmm. and to run the same type of hard drive uh, erasing security programs you would on a normal hard drive to run on this. Because I got a pretty good feeling if they recovered anything on here, Mm -hmm. Microsoft may have done a simple formatting of the computer, Mm -hmm. which simply just goes ahead and says, all this space is now unallocated. Doesn't write any zero or ones back to what was there. And it's really easy to get to. Because if you haven't overwritten a certain section of your hard drive, you can pull it right back up. You just have to recreate the file allocation tables typically to pull the information back up. So So, Microsoft saying they don't store credit card information locally. mm -hmm. These people are saying they've got it. It should be interesting to see in the next couple days once Microsoft gets the information how it shakes out.
1: So um, with that, are they saying that if you buy that piece of equipment, hook it up, wipe it, um, how is the software that's used to run the Xbox, in that sense, its operating system. If it have it, how is that supposed to get back installed onto the, to the Xbox if you're wiping it, or is that just a reformatting tool that would um, well you know, the way back to that? the
0: way I understand how the Xbox works is, I I'm under the impression mm-hmm. that when you buy a 120 gig hard drive, okay. that doesn't have your Microsoft operating system on it. Gotcha. I don't think so. Uh, it may have some dashboard updates, mm-hmm. but when I pull that off yeah. and I put on a different hard drive, it still boots up. Um, okay. It still has my Xbox Live data on it. But so you it know the thing stored. about that, I think it would be interesting to try to see like if you had one hard drive on and then there was an update that got downloaded from Xbox. Yeah, be interesting to update that hard drive, pull it off, put on a hard drive that hasn't had the update installed. Mm-hmm. To really be able to test and see, we should test that does it go ahead and ask for it again? If it does, that proves they store it on that same hard drive, okay. but um, but I don't think so. I mean, when you look at the the article we posted online, you can click over to yet another uh, article that was posted April 1st. And, and I don't believe being posted on April 1st means it was an April Fool's yeah, joke. Yeah. But um they go ahead and they, they mention here that it was actually at Drexel University and Dakota State University where these people bought a refurbished 360 from Microsoft and then they downloaded a basic modding tool, gained access to the console's files and folders, and eventually extracted the credit card information of the original owner. So they, they go ahead and tell them right here that Microsoft does a great job of protecting the proprietary information, mm-hmm. but they don't do a very good job of protecting the user's information. I mean okay. at this point even even what I've heard of online if people do what you would normally call modding of an Xbox 360 it's not in the traditional sense of what we would think of with with something because usually if you can mod an, a a game console you could install Linux or a, yeah. a whole other operating system on it and even to this day you cannot pull that off with a 360 the old Xboxes, I've heard of people running Linux on it, a homebrewed version. Uh-huh. That's never happened with the three sixty. To the best of my knowledge, when you look out there online, the only way people are being able to modify three sixty is they're they're putting a small little cheat, a little hack on where basically the D V D drive doesn't read a sector that only appears on original Xbox games. It's a small sleight of hand that even yeah. allows you to play um pirated or burnt games so the idea is microsoft has done an amazing job of making sure that all of their proprietary information is stored correctly on here these people are faulting them though for not doing a very good job of protecting the consumer side so okay. but that's uh, very interesting i'm, yeah, I'm curious to yeah. see how this shakes out
1: I'll be, I'll be sure to follow up on that one um, <clears throat> so another story here: uh, 1.5 million card numbers at risk from hack. Now, credit this is cards, made, yes, credit cards um, and debit cards oh. as well. So, um, uh, from all the major credit card and and debit card brands. So if your bank uses a specific Mastercard or whatever like that, it, that's affected as well. Um, this has made big national news. Um, a data breach at a payments processing firm has potentially compromised up to. million credit and debit card numbers from all of the major credit card and uh, debit card brands. Um, Global Payments, a company that processes credit uh, card and debit card transactions, confirmed late Friday that card data may have been accessed. The company said it discovered the intrusion in early March and promptly notified others in the industry. Global Payments uh, released a statement late Sunday with more details saying that while more than 1 million card numbers may have been compromised, cardholder names, addresses, and social security numbers were not affected. Um, So, uh, it didn't say, Global Payments did not say which card companies were affected, but Visa released a statement on Friday saying that it was all of the big players, um, and I believe that they have backed out as well. MasterCard says it has alerted uh, payment card issuers regarding certain MasterCard accounts that are potentially at risk. Discover and American Express say that they are monitoring the situation. Late Sunday, Visa spokeswoman Sandra Chu confirmed to CNN that Visa has removed global payments from its list of preferred credit card processors. <laughs> so, global payments can pr- still process transactions, but it will have to pay higher fees to do so um, through Visa. Um they have uh, global payments has held a press conference today, releasing more details. Executive stressed that an investigation is ongoing. Until that is complete, they're holding off on going into specifics on how the hack happened. Um, Still Global pl- Payments said the breach was limited to only a handful of servers and it appears to be confined to accounts in North America, that doesn't make me feel any better. Uh, the company's CEO <laughs> Paul Since Garcia said we are in North America. We yeah. are uh, Paul Garcia said it was working with his customers closely to contain the damage. Um and they are they are coming out and saying that it was thieves, it wasn't just a, you know, a a hack to hack. They are thieves. They are trying to um, it was looks like it was some sort of group effort, and they were trying to specifically uh, obtain this information. On Saturday, a U.S. Secret Service spokeswoman said the agency is also investigating the in- incident, so the Secret Service is involved. Um, uh, should be pretty interesting. Um, Global Payments processed $167 billion worth of transactions in its last fiscal year, which ended May 31st, 2011. The company specializing in serving small merchants like mom and pop businesses and local retailers. So, um, it, it, you know, it's a third party type situation. Um, but um, apparently, that's a that well, that's a huge, huge amount of card information as far as numbers are concerned that has been uh, breached. They did; they are saying as of now that names, um, addresses, social security numbers, things like that, weren't obtained. But card numbers were right. um most time most of the time, uh, you know, when you online shop and things like that, you know, they do require you to have a name and they and want other they want to like know what that, the billing what the billing, billing address yeah. and things like that are. So hopefully um with the information they got they won't be able to put um put anything together as far as people um, you know, getting weird bills and things like that for things that pr- were purchased. Um, but this is a big, big, big hack because it affects all of the big players, debit and credit card related. So if you're, like I said, if your bank uses my bank, for instance, you have a debit card through my bank, and it's a, it's a Mastercard. Yep, that's same affected. Yeah, same so, here. um Should be. We, we don't know.
0: We don't know necessarily if our card numbers got affected, but yeah. we definitely know that we could be a member of the affected people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We could be wow. So, yeah, I heard amount. you say.
0: I heard you say Visa, Discover, Mastercard, and Amex. So yeah. that's everybody.
1: It's yeah, it's hit everybody. So um, hopefully, um, you know, they, they've stopped it as far as they know which numbers are out there, and they're they're going to be contacting those people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll be interesting to see the details of how it was hacked and and who all initially has been affected and things like that. So. Yeah, you know,
0: I never. I guess I never thought about this side, but that, that kind of makes me want to go and research and learn about how credit card transactions even take place because even though people are taking a visa MasterCard or whatever apparently you have these third-party companies in between who are mm-hmm. doing the transactions and so they have a very long chain in their supply chain and uh, in this case one yeah. one weak link can really screw it all up
1: apparently and they're saying it's a small they're saying it's a small network of servers. So it's not even like their whole, their whole shebang. Right, so, um, be interesting to see.
0: Wow. Well, I've got one more here. Um, th- this, you know, this may kind of come from the duh category a little bit, but I-, I feel sure everyone out there probably thinks, or you've read articles about the fact that there are hackers out there who create exploits or find exploits inside of software, and they probably sell that information. You know, the whole idea is look, I found an awesome way to build a break into a bunch of computers. I don't just want to keep that for myself. I want to sell it to the mafia or the Russians or the Chinese, whoever's doing hacking and that type of thing, and be able to make a lot of money. So I'm sure the seedy underbelly of IT is is nothing people would be shocked to hear about. What I am kind of shocked about is the title of this next um, article, U.S. Government Pays... $250,000 for an iOS exploit. So just to remind everybody, iOS is the operating system that Apple uses for all their portable devices, iPod, iPad, iPhone, you name it. And so what the article basically goes into is they're now saying selling exploits to government agencies, not not the mob, not the Russian mafia, those type of people, but selling them to government agencies is becoming a more and more lucrative business. Hackers can get paid anywhere from $5,000 to $250,000 for security vulnerability. And this particular article talks about, on the low end, if you can figure out an exploit in Adobe Reader, you can get $5,000 to $30,000. They talk about different programs like being able to have exploits in uh, OSX or maybe in a, on an Android phone or a Flash device, uh, you do, I find a little, well, I guess I don't find it too surprising. You get more money if you can hack Windows than you can uh-huh. hack OSX, but of course. I guess I would think it would be, you know, you'd have a much wider target range because that way that's going to be more valuable to them to be able yeah. to get more people. Yeah. But yeah, they're saying that an undisclosed U.S. government contractor recently paid $250,000 for an iOS exploit. And I guess the thing that kind of shocked me about the whole thing was now hackers can kind of go legitimate they can they can become hackers, mm-hmm. they can hack and find ways to break into things, and then the u s government will pay you yeah. money for your exploit yeah. as long as you don't publish it. They want it, so they can then use it against their enemies to be able to to do uh data warfare and information mm-hmm. warfare to be able to break in so
1: something they should have done years ago i mean, I mean it, uh, really yeah, they should have I, mean, I
0: mean I just I, I kind of find it as them rewarding. Yeah. Doing illegal activity, though. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it. yeah, if they can find a way to truly, truly legalize it as far as, yes, you know, they are getting paid, you know, Mm -hmm. for it once they give them those exploits. But getting to that point, technically still illegal. Right. You know, is my understanding. So if they can find a way to legitimize that, maybe make it into a, um, but see, you know, that's where, you know, a lot of these hackers and stuff, they do this just for the thrills to say, you know, I did this or I did that. That's also where, you know, obviously that was a large amount of money that, you know, was being paid as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, to them, but, um, so many in that culture of, of hackers, um, don't want to be controlled by anybody, you know, they don't want it. So you couldn't say, let's put together this company of hackers and just hack places and, and make it legal because they're not going to want to do that. You know, they're going to want to be, you know, in their basement doing this stuff. They're not going to, you know, they don't want to have to deal with the man. They, they want, Yeah, they, 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 want, want, they, they want to fight the man. They want they to don't, fight the man. They don't want so, to work for the man. Sure, they'll take a big check from the man, as I would, but, <laughs> you know, they don't want to fully work for the man. But, um, you know, some, some of them probably would, but, um, you know, the... It'll be interesting. I like that.
0: I guess I'm not shocked that hackers hack things. That's not the part I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm shocked the fact that now it's being legitimized yeah. by the U.S. government. It's,
1: it's taking a weird turn because, you know, you hear about, um, well, we just talked about, you know, that now the credit card and debit card thing I talked about, know, they were legitimately stealing information. Now you you might say that these hackers could go in and just hack it and say, look, we accessed, accessed this information but we didn't steal any of it right so uh, you know then they could say okay yeah here's your check for finding us this exploit that was that's, supposedly that's kevin mitnick's
0: big argument mm-hmm. he was saying you know he didn't sell anything yeah but the idea was there was a data breach yeah. but as opposed to giving this maybe maybe if you find a hole in semantic antivirus mm-hmm. instead of going to semantic and being like hey I've, i found a problem with you and seeing if they'll pay you for that exploit you found yeah you go to the government mm-hmm. and the government's like yeah we'll buy that and then the government will try to use that exploit to um connect to i don't know iran's nuclear power plants <laughs> yeah. and try to bring them offline or something like that
1: yeah. i mean and it's you know and it, that them paying, you know, hackers to do you know, give them that, it's probably a heck of a lot cheaper than putting together a team of of what you know, what would be their hackers or whatever to try to discover new ways to get that information or you know, that's use true. those exploits. So that's probably how they're looking at it too. A one time check compared to, you know, 10, 15, 20 people's salaries for a year, that's probably how they're looking trying to legitimize it themselves because hackers are you know that they're doing it for fun most of the time and you know can just do it from home they don't have to worry about anything else they don't have to have any you know any special clearance or Mm -hmm. whereas you know if they if they create their own team of their own government people that's a lot more I'd say that's a lot more time and and money involved so true I don't know Hmm. it's interesting to see how they're thinking about that but yeah I got another um, article here it's pretty interesting it's kind of um, just came across it. It says IT jobs will grow 22% through 2020, says the U.S. Um, U.S. officials on Thursday said that offshoring will hurt the growth of U.S. programming jobs in this decade, though expansion of healthcare IT and mobile networks will in turn increase demand for software developers, support net net technicians, and systems analysts. By 2020, employment in all computer occupations is expected to increase by 22%, but some IT fields will fare better than others, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics of Employment Projections. So, you know, this is a projection, but it is by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, so it is legitimized. Um, and according to this, it's a, it's a three-page article I found on Computer World, and they are saying that um, the one of the only ones that won't see Much of an increase is going to be the programming because of um, so much of that being outsourced and things because you don't have to be in, you know, this or that. You can program from home. Um, But um, doing this other stuff with uh, software development, that's usually done in large groups and teams. Right. Support technicians, obviously. That's hands-on stuff. Systems analysts. Um, networking, you know, people—they have to be there to be able to do that stuff. Some of the groups are going to be increasing twenty-eight to thirty-two percent, um, and you know, the the um, income, the um, salary on a lot of these jobs are going to start to increase, and they, as they already have because the need is higher. Um, you know, the, these computer-based jobs have really started taking over as far as um, obviously healthcare and nursing and things like that are still some of those top jobs, but right. now these computer jobs are up there in the top five. There's two or three computer jobs that they list in the top uh, five as far as, you know, what, what we need is the, you know, the United States. Well, even
0: now with, with the health IT. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a big one. And that's what they're saying. A big push for even the, the support technicians and the software developers is the healthcare IT, um, which it hurts other fields with like things like medical transcription and things like that. Um, um because you know the doctors and things like that they're they're themselves are starting to have to type up their own reports but everything still is essentially going to computers it's all you know everything's being hooked up that way all the information is being put into that now everything's going green going mm-hmm. paperless so more and more technicians and things like that software developers are are coming up with ways to um you know support the big push in healthcare right but, You know that's just one one area, but that seems to be the biggest area of push is the healthcare IT. But they still want to. There's always other ones.
0: There's always change. Mm -hmm. You know, back back in the, I don't know, back in the 1800s, you went and you paid someone for a horse, and that's how you got around. Eventually, the horse industry kind of lost out because then you went and paid someone for a Ford. But the point is, the transportation. You still had to have it. It just changed hands. So when you were talking about the medical transcription side of things, yeah, that industry may be going down, but they're paying someone else to come in and set up a new infrastructure so that I, I guess it's it's the circle of life. Yeah. It's like the Lion King. Yeah, you know? that's it. The problem is you may have to get retrained exactly. to, to stay in that, in that yeah. circle of life for your job, basically.
1: Yeah, the good thing is, though, too, um, with – um, you know, areas like where we're at in Huntington, West Virginia, um there are more and more computer um companies and mm-hmm. things like that starting to pop up. But other than that, there's not any really big organizations, but we do have uh, you know, five hospitals all within, five or six hospitals all within the tri-state region that yes. are very large hospitals mm-hmm. that all need IT support, you know, 24/7 now. I remember uh, when I first started looking for jobs after I got my associates before I was working here and working on my bachelors, I was looking at these hospitals and they were they were hiring one or two, and the hours were you know a lot of like daytime hours and things like that, which was right. fun with me but now it 's they got to have these i t people here you know midnight shifts and everything twenty four seven to be able to support all the things going on so It's a good thing in the sense that if you're in an area that doesn't have a whole lot of other opportunities but you have a couple big hospitals or medical offices like that, there's a good chance there's some IT jobs going to be opening up if they aren't already there. It's true.
0: And I will will agree with what you said earlier. Well, I guess what the report said earlier, but Mm -hmm. even though programming is a very exciting field right now Mm -hmm. and the fact that I I could – I could write the next Angry Birds mm-hmm. game to put on a, on an iPhone or something like that. Yeah. I think I think the people who wrote that there was five people who wrote that yeah. game. The yeah. problem is everybody in the world could also write the next Angry Birds. Yeah, and so with, the competition's really really fierce.
1: Yeah, with with programming being those languages are universal. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody can sit here and write a C plus plus program, and you can also sit in India and write a C plus plus program. And those yeah. there are people over there that are advancing themselves a lot further than what we as americans are too
0: and unfortunately the problem there is when a business looks at it and says okay one person's going to charge forty thousand dollars rice program Mm -hmm. someone in india is is going to gladly undercut that person and only charge thirty thousand because their um uh their cost cost of of living living. yeah Yeah. cost of living over there is not as much exactly uh that that kind that tends to be hard um but, you know, that's that's globalization, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to try to take globalization and wrap it around networking. Exactly. Because if the person's not in this room and they can't go ahead and run your cabling and set up your inf- information, yep. they might be able to remote desktop in and mm-hmm. try to do some things, but someone's got to be there to turn off the server, do the day-to-day operations, yep. uh, or else if they're going to remote desktop in the whole time, you're going to be paying a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. So. So I definitely agree that programming is always going to be problematic. I know you've got great programmers everywhere, but that in itself is yep. the problem. You have great programmers everywhere.
1: everywhere. Yeah. And, I mean, that's what they talk about with the with the uh, increase in software developers. Mm-hmm. That's, again, that's a team, usually a team-based project. Is it cheaper to hire a 10-, 15-man team here, or is it cheaper to outsource? Now, with that, a lot of times you're using specific software, you're developing software for a company um, here in the United States, they're going to want to see that day-to-day operation. They're not going to be able to outsource that. So that's one. That's another one. That's a sticking point here. True. Same way with so- support technicians, obviously. Just like the networking, they have to physically be here to be able to do the yeah. do the hands-on work. And then systems analysts. Um, you know that's that's another another one that where they have to be here to be able to do right. the work and have access to that.
0: I can't imagine even here you want to call Washington State and say I need to get my printer replaced. Yeah, and then have Washington State call someone local here and be like, go down the hall and do the printer. Yeah, how about you do some synergy? Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, let alone India as yeah. opposed to Washington State. But yeah, I really think that's gonna that's gonna help the area. So.
1: But um, yeah, it says uh, any time they've got a growth chart here of mm-hmm. how they do their percentages of comparison, uh, comparative growth rates, and anything that's an increase of twenty percent to twenty eight percent is faster than average. Yeah. Anything increased from twenty nine or more is much faster than average. Right. So the twenty percent, twenty two percent range overall in the IT that we're talking about is a faster than average rate, meaning they're going to want to fill these jobs quicker. Which again. I mean, not to um, you know toot our horn here, but uh, getting you an associate degree and some certifications gets you in a job a lot quicker than necessarily doing a a four to five year bachelor's degree um, with the rate that the jobs are out there. And so, if you're having to go, you're an adult and you're having to retrain or or reeducate yourself because of you know something closing or you losing your job. These technical fields, you know, with IT and stuff may be the route for you. So saying that, you know, IT is not for everybody, but, um, you know, it is a Well, I I will
0: also say, too, and I I can't say this for a lot of other states because it's not like I know other states as intimately as I know West Virginia, but at least here in West Virginia, uh, our our Office of of Technology, Mm -hmm. so at the state capitol, the people who do the IT, in previous years their mantra has basically been, Four-year degree, four-year degree, four-year degree. And we've recently talked to them, and we've seen a turn in that to where they're opening up to the idea of an associate's degree plus certifications. Mm -hmm. Just not an associate's degree, but certifications because they now see the value in bringing in people that have industry-level certifications Mm -hmm. uh, that they're going to have a lot of information, too, on the technical side because everything's getting more and more technical, and we need people and we need to be fresh, yes, because you go through a four-year degree, and how fresh is the information you got back in your first semester? Exactly, it, it is quite old. So, um, so I I definitely know that in some arenas that a, a bachelor's degree is is preferred, mm-hmm. but I think in the IT world they also really like to see industry certifications. That's a really big thing. So I I completely agree with you on that one, Josh. Yeah, so.
1: awesome. But, um, that's all the stories I have,
0: okay, yeah, so that's going to be all the stories we do for today. uh The next thing we'll do is go ahead and turn it over to my interview I did with one of our former students, Jay Jones. This is going to start a a series that will be continuing on throughout the throughout the course of the podcast. Every once in a while, we will sprinkle in s- stories from our students uh some some success stories. One of the main reasons we want to go ahead and do this is to give you, the audience, an idea of a of a viewpoint or maybe a story from someone besides the administration. Uh, I think so many people, if they listen to this and they're even remotely considering going back to school, they may say, well, you know, in my situation, it's just not possible or, or I don't think I could be able to do it in my situation or I don't know how it would work out and this will give you the opportunity to be able to hear stories from our students about what their life was like before they came here, maybe what exactly uh caused or precipitated them having to come here. Maybe they got um laid off or they just decided to change their job and and find out what they learned, what they brought with them and and also if they decided to continue on possibly to a four-year degree and 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 ultimately if they have any advice for you, the audience, who may also be planning on attending a two- or a four-year institution. So let's go ahead and and, uh, get into the interview. So today is the first interview in a series of interviews we'll be having over the foreseeable future of the podcast, where we go back and interview some of our previous students uh, who've had wonderful success stories. Uh, Today, our first interview is with uh, Jay Jones one of our previous students here at Mount West Community and Technical College. Hello, Jay. Hi. Um, so today, I want you to be able to, to talk about, if you would, um, your experience, how you came to Mount West, um, what you took at Mount West, and then what you're doing now if you're continuing your education or if you're working a job, mainly because there, there may be people out in our audience who would be listening to this and who may be thinking about coming back to school or they may fall into the situation that, that you may talk about that, that you've had in your own life experience. So any advice you'll be able to give them or any uh, tips to hopefully avoid certain pitfalls you can give would be great. So I guess the first question for you today is um, ultimately what brought you here to Mount West? What was your situation before or what, sh- what caused you to want to come back to school?
2: Well, I didn't have any education, and uh, I was working at an aluminum plant, and I got laid off. But I seen the layoff coming, so I had time to, to think about it. And mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed computers, so when I seen that I had the opportunity to go back to school, I chose to do computers, IT. So, but when you say you didn't have any education, you, you had a high school degree, though, right? You're, yeah, you're just I agree. saying you didn't have any higher education. Correct. Yeah, I graduated okay. high school, but that was as far as I ever went.
0: Okay. Um. So, also, you said you enjoyed computers. So, this, for you, moving from um, working in an aluminum plant to going to computers wasn't going to be something so drastically foreign for you. You already had a computer at the house. I mean, it was, it was already something you enjoyed, you said. So, you already had some comfort level with computers? Yeah, computers is...
2: I mean, it's kind of been a hobby for me, something I always enjoyed. And, okay. Um, to the point I'd even started school back in, I went to Rio Grande for mm-hmm. a half a semester in, I think, like 2001 for computer science. So,
0: so that's, and that's a, that's a four-year institution in Ohio? Or is that uh, it, two-year? It's,
2: it's the same. It Well, it's a university and a community college. I was actually okay. going to community college. but. Okay. You know, raising a family and working—you know, full time—that didn't work out very well. Yeah,
0: the priority was to make sure you had the money at that point, and and so you went ahead and, and went with the job, and um, didn't didn't pursue the education at that point. Right. So, but when the when the layoff came up, you found the fact that you could get a new start, and so you decided you liked computers you were you were starting it before you didn't have the opportunity before but now you could go ahead and come back and fulfill that opportunity yeah okay okay so um so i guess at that point you you've already basically said that the reason you went to information technology you already thought about starting that previously you'd had one semester in it was something you liked but but then the family called and and you went the other route when you came back to school and you came here to Mount West What was the focus uh, for IT? Where did you decide to go? Did you you do web classes? Did you do um, Microsoft networking, Cisco networking? What
2: areas of emphasis did you find initially when you came here that you planned to pursue? Originally, I uh, was for the Microsoft, for the network administration. Okay. So, um, like all of my Microsoft classes, the
0: Server 2008 type of stuff did you find that as you went through your two years that that you might have sampled something and went oh i really like this area as well and decided to go ahead and and maybe either ditch the microsoft side
2: and and go another route or decide i'm gonna get both of these or did you branch out basically yeah um i'd spoke with loker one time my first semester here and Mm -hmm. and was talking to him and um he had told me, you know I was asking him about kind of jobs, and he mm-hmm. asked me, "Well, are you doing software or hardware and right um I've wanted to be as well rounded as possible so mm-hmm. i after talking to him, then I started doing the Cisco side of it too, which I really enjoyed so I actually did the I did the Cisco and the Microsoft both
0: so so ultimately <clears throat> we've we've talked previously um some of the previous podcasts we've talked about highlights of the Microsoft program and and we talked with Jack Loker about the Cisco program so you ended up going through both the network administration degree basically as well as the Cisco program or did you also pick up some of the
2: classes we had in the security side as well uh yeah I did the security um, the security degree but it okay. was the I got the security classes mm-hmm. and then and then also did the Microsoft um, it originally wasn't in the security degree it wasn't the other three Microsoft classes. Yeah, yeah, the security degree only has the first semester in Microsoft. Right. Well, I with the Cisco, I went ahead and picked up the other three classes also. So I ended okay. up getting all the Microsoft and the Cisco both.
0: Okay. Based on based on those classes you took here cuz I feel that means you took you took all my Microsoft classes, um, you took Jack Cisco classes. Uh, you probably also took his wireless course that he offers here. Did you decide uh, to pursue any certifications, or are there any certifications you're still pursuing right now that you're that you're looking at while you were here, or or after the fact?
2: Um, I'm not currently pursuing any um, certifications right now, but okay. I have. I've um, I've taken the Security Plus one. Mm-hmm. I took the Network Plus. Um, I took all of your Microsoft ones. So, I took the yeah. Exchange.
0: Yeah, so you took all, well, seven of the Microsoft, but also, did you do the Windows 7 as well? No, I
2: didn't. I did the Vesta, not the okay. 7. Yeah, because that way you only needed one client to get your enterprise administrator, so you went that route. Right. Okay. And then, I think, in, around the end of April before I graduate, or mm-hmm. my last semester of Cisco, I took the CCNA, and, mm-hmm. and I've got my CCNA now, too.
0: Had you originally gotten your CCENT? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... I guess you can't really speak from experience of a person who who's taken the ccna straight up but did you find that the test i'm just out of curiosity in general jack was talking to us in a previous podcast that many students will sit for their CCENT after their first two semesters and that's usually helpful at that point that when they sit for that they can continue on to take the ccna now he was speaking about how Some students will choose to take just the bridge exam because apparently there's an exam that just finishes up semester three and semester four at the very end. And some students say, heck with it, I'm going to take the full-blown CCNA so I can cover all the stuff again and know that I know at least half the material already because I passed the CCNT. So I'm just curious, did you take your bridge exam or did you decide to take the the full-blown thing again?
2: No, I took the bridge. Oh, okay. I took the CCENT CC the mm-hmm. first time, right? And then I just took the other half. I think. Um, anyway, I just took the other half to get right. because basically what it amounts to is if you take the C C E and T, mm-hmm. it's kind of like um, introductory material. Uh, okay, you know, kind of like the 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 theory. I would say of it. Right. Um, when you take the second half, you get more into the advanced stuff. So, if to, in my opinion, if you take them separately you know, you kind of, you can, you your focus of the test is not as broad, and, and I think you can if You can, like, divide and conquer a lot easier that way, too. So, yeah, you don't have to yeah. study for four
0: full semesters of information, just two, and two individually. Right. So, I think okay. it's easier to go
2: that route. And okay. then, not to mention, if you fail it, you know, you've only got half the cost that you're failing rather than...
0: That's true, that's true, yeah, because when you take the bridge, um, I think they just recently raised the Cisco CCNA prices, but I think traditionally it was around one twenty five a piece or the right. full thing was two fifty so right. you're just at one twenty five as opposed to a full two fifty so okay um so at this point here you you've got a lot of your certifications um I believe you also got your storage certification from my storage class to e m c is that correct
2: yeah, I just took that mm-hmm. i think around the end of December oh, okay, right at okay. January,
0: okay. So you you end up graduating here basically with focuses in both our security option as well as the Microsoft or the network administration option. You got a a large handful of uh, certifications. Once you finished here, what did did you then do? Did you go ahead and and go out to industry? Did you go ahead and and decide to pursue a Uh, four-year?
2: What's going on now? Well, at the end of... uh my last semester, I got an internship as an mm-hmm. associate network engineer at Strictly Business, mm-hmm. and um, but I wanted to pursue a four-year degree, and so I spoke with them, and they've let me still remain as, a, as an intern mm-hmm. while I'm still going to school. So right now, I'm still working there, mm-hmm. um, but I'm going to the university now for computer forensics.
0: Okay. So
2: your your
0: internship which um in a previous podcast we talked to Rhonda Scrag about how at the end of, of the of the 2 years of someone coming here that she places them you were placed with a company where um which was strictly business where you were able to go ahead and complete your 240 hours but they've also gone ahead and allowed you to stay there and continue your job while you finish up uh the 4 year degree. So have I guess the question there is, so have they officially hired you on and just hired you on as a part-time capacity so until you finish your degree or has that
2: been talked about or or discussed or anything no I'm still a I'm still an internship okay. but when I discussed it with them right um when I mentioned intern we'd kind of agreed that you know intern slash part-time okay so um that's good. That's but good. Technically, I think I'm still an intern, but it amounts to right. to part time.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that still works. I mean, it's a job. It's you get an experience that you can definitely put on your resume, whether you decide to stay with them or you decide to go somewhere else. Um, but you decided you you wanted to go ahead and continue your four year um your de- your four year degree. Um, could you talk about how that decision was reached and and what opportunities might have swayed your decision in in that regard?
2: Well, for one, the, the, the more I learned in college, the 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 more that I realize I don't know, and the, and the more that there is that I'd like to know. So that right. that was part of of wanting to get even more education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I learned the process and learned about it, you know, I I, I just learned a lot more in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that ultimately a bachelor's degree will open up even more doors for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the, there's the Trailblazer Scholarship,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I applied for that, and I got that. So that gives me the opportunity to to pursue the four-year degree, mm-hmm. and that's that's where I'm at now with that.
0: Now, we, we haven't previously talked about that on the podcast yet, but at some point I want to have uh, Dr. Jones come back and talk to us. Basically, for, for anyone who's who's curious what the Trailblazer Scholarship is about— Because you may have something similar or an opportunity like it in your area. Uh, It's uh, an articulation we have here between our two-year institution of Mount West Community Technical College and Marshall University. And I I believe, and you may have to help me with this a little bit, uh, Jay, but as long as you leave us and you decide to go over to Marshall University in something that's STEM-related, so science, technology, engineering, or mathematics you have the ability to get a scholarship that may help you finish up your two-year here and continue on to finish up your third and your fourth year at Marshall. Um, and if I remember correctly, the the scholarship is geared towards uh, individuals who have dependents as well. So there, it's a lot – I think it's geared more towards people who are returning to college, people who already have families. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Okay, so – because of that opportunity, you're able to go ahead and continue, um, your degree over there. What what section did you decide to go with? Since a possibility of you know science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, did you decide to stay in IT,
2: or did you decide to change to a different field? No, I I I still like the IT. Uh-huh. Um, it's just I mean to me to to work in a job that you enjoy. I just I enjoy all aspects of IT, so okay. um, I chose the integrated science and technology, but my concentration is computer forensics.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, eventually we're going to try to talk to uh, Brian Morgan, who's who's the head of the IST, the integrated science and technology department over there, and when we get him on the podcast, we're going to talk about articulations we have, because I know they have a, a gaming articulation that they, they teach over there. They have the computer forensics. I believe they have a couple more possibly over there as well. So uh, we'll go back and, and mention that um, once we get him on the podcast. So at this point, you're continuing on your degree. Uh, you have you have you a job in your actual field, which is awesome, fantastic. Do you have, looking back at your time, well, looking back at your time, even at your your former employer the the aluminum company and through mctc and even now uh right now that you're doing in marshall do you have any advice that you might give to someone who's deciding or might just have found themselves in the situation you were where it's like well i'll put off college for now and then at some point they're like oh crap i, I can't put off that i need to be retrained to go somewhere else or do something else do you have any general advice either on a two year or a four year, I guess anything in particular, uh, that you would that you would tell someone like that who's having to possibly go back to school?
2: My advice to anybody who's who's even thinking about it is, man, just do it. <clears throat> you know, this has by far been a turning point in my life for the positive. Um you know, looking back, one thing I'd tell people is is to, to talk to someone because I didn't talk to advisors or any you know and once I got in and spoke with, with some instructors they gave me advice but I I would advise people to speak ahead of time and try to figure out your schedule because for, for one thing you know, some classes are offered in the spring and some in the fall. Right. But I didn't, I didn't know that. So if you can plan ahead of time, then you can, you know, you you plan it, plan that up, and then you can avoid some shortfalls later on.
0: So, so you're basically saying, when you decided you were going to go back to school, and you decided it was going to be IT, you would have rather maybe contacted um, myself or contacted Jack Loker to get some more information to have an idea of of what you're going to be preparing for when you come here.
2: Um uh, mostly to what classes you're going to need right? and then kind of how to plan those classes out so that you can graduate in the amount of time. Because okay. If you don't watch it, you know, you can end up with just needing one spring class and mm-hmm. then that keeps you from graduating and then you have to do a whole semester for just one class.
0: Right. Know? I mean because we we do we try our best to to lay out our classes. For example, with the Cisco program there is a there's a class called IT131 which some people call semester 1 Cisco because technically it's it's your fall class and then you have the 1 the 140 uh, 141 which is the second class and then the 231 and then 241 if someone jumped in at spring they'd be all out of whack they they'd have to wait till next fall to start their Cisco classes and that would start a a
2: 2 year To your journey at that point so is that what you mean that that's the exact class that i'm referring to when i when i was uh when i came in here and i was doing just the microsoft side right um i had loker's um operating system class and Mm -hmm. that's when i was talking to him and i decided to do um the cisco side too Mm -hmm. but the thing of it was was that was i think in the fall when they was doing 131 then right so had he not let me do a self study and get caught up, right. I would have had to wait, you know, a whole year out of turn to, to 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 get in, and that's exactly what I was referring to right there. So, so to
0: reemphasize what you're saying is,
2: you were already here your first semester, your
0: first fall semester into this college, and you found out that you might want to look at doing the Cisco option as well, and you found out well the first class on that journey already started this semester you should have technically enrolled for that class and so they were able to go ahead and and still enroll you and get you caught up because if that wasn't the case that class you needed was not going to be offered till the following fall so you were going to sit out spring at least in that track and then wait for fall to come back around so yeah we we definitely we do have classes and and I would say any institution out there has classes that are specifically fall-based classes or spring-based classes. So it would be very, very wise to call somebody, whether it's an advisor, whether it's um, an instructor who's over the particular area, or even the instructor that teaches it. Any information is better than no information and, and going in blind. Do you have any advice possibly on on somebody who may may right now be working their way through a two-year degree? And and like yourself, they're already involved and they're like, you know what, if I'm already here, I might as well go ahead and finish a bachelor's degree as well. Do you have any advice for someone who might be getting ready to transition and graduate from a two-year and then move on up to a four-year? Were there any growing pains or hurdles or pitfalls that you found in a transition from a
2: two-year to a four-year? The only thing I can think of that I would do different and that I would advise someone is to... Um, what you're doing now mm-hmm. and what you're going to do at a four-year try to combine them so that the classes you're completing now will transfer over instead of instead of taking like double the classes if you can if you can plan it out mm-hmm. then then you can reduce the classes that you take.
0: Okay, well I do know, and of course we're recording this in West Virginia, and other states have different policies, but I do know here in this state. There are English classes that you could take at our two-year institution that would easily transfer to a four-year institution. There is possibilities, though, that there are certain classes, like certain math classes, that you would take here that would not transfer. But so what you're saying basically is talk with advisors. If you already have the idea that you might be transferring uh, over to a four-year institution, see if there's a class they already offer at the two-year that might be able to kill two birds with one stone. It would be effective in the two-year degree, and also it would still be accepted by the four-year institution as well. Correct? Yes. Okay. Because a lot of times students, um, they, they used to call articulations two-plus-two programs. They like to call them four-year articulations now because more often than not, two-plus-two was a bit of a lie. It, it usually became two-plus-three because at a, at a community college, or a community and technical college, depending on which one you're at, you typically get your Englishes, you get your maths. They, they mainly give you one of each. It's, it's all about the applied science that you go into, at least it is here, since we're a technical college. And when you go to a four-year degree, they're going to expect you to have more than one English. They're going to expect you to have had a speech, which we offer speech in a lot of our options, but some of them give you two Englishes instead. So you are still going to have to work your way through uh, a bit of general education. A lot of times, at least a at least a year and a half of general education classes. So, any of them that you can go ahead and uh, and knock out that take the place of both the two year and the four year would be an excellent um, option to go ahead and do. Save you some money, possibly save the government some money if you're doing if you're doing FAFSA or anything like that. Which that's that's um that's another quick little question I'll ask you. Did you when you originally came back, a lot of students come back and they do student loans and they're not for sure when to get student loans. So I guess the first question is, if you didn't pay out of pocket for your classes when you decided to come back, were there any timelines that that you're like, oh crap, I wish I would have known to submit my paperwork ahead of time? Or was there any time when when you said to yourself, well, I wish I would have known I should have submitted my paperwork. The worst thing they were going to say is no. Um, for your financial aid opportunities, did you have any,
2: any issues with those either here at Marshall? Not really. With the exception of there's a West Virginia higher education grant Mm -hmm. that apparently if you don't file your FAFSA within a certain time, you don't get it. And, um, but I never knew that. I just got it, and I didn't know why I'd got it. But later on, I found out that you had a, a certain dead a deadline to fill that out, and then you can well, I qualified for the West Virginia Higher Education Grant.
0: So you're saying that at least here in West Virginia, if you decide to go back to school, let's say a month out at least, you have to go ahead and get your FAFSA paperwork in order. That was what you were having to do. um because West Virginia, they were also going to give you an additional amount of money? Is that what you're, is that what you're meaning by the the
2: higher education? I'm not exactly sure what the West Virginia higher education grant is from. Right. But you get it from filling out your FAFSA too. But I think you have to fill it out by like around like tax deadline, April or March. I know like for, for the, the, what is it? Is it the thir 12 and 13 year or is it? Like, one year ahead, 13 or 14. Anyway, mm-hmm. I've already filled out the FAFSA this time for okay. the coming year. Oh, I see. So, you're saying even though we won't come back to school until
0: August, you've gone ahead and filled out that form here in in March, February
2: or March, to make sure you do that. Yeah, because yeah. you have to file it, like, like for the, the coming year. I have mm-hmm. to file it now, like, before April in order to qualify for the, the West Virginia Higher Education Grant. Okay.
0: So... I guess the point of that, which is a good point to make, is that even though FAFSA, the F in FAFSA, is federal, even though there's federal monies, federal uh, opportunities you can get, be aware that it may actually uh, work in your favor to check and see if there's any local state information or local state money that you might get. And if so, maybe you're filing your paperwork too late to actually get that. One thing that I'll mention, and that's a timely thing, is that um, I'm taking grad classes, and I took all my my tax work with me to the tax office and got it done, and then it occurred to me a couple days later, I wonder if I can write off my grad classes, because I'd always heard previously there was something, I think, back when Clinton was in office called the HOPE, the HOPE credit, where you could go for two years of school and they'd let you write off your taxes. I wondered if... I was already doing grad classes. I was well past four years at that point. I didn't know if I could do that, and apparently I could. But I had not received... It's called a 1098 form. I would not received it in the mail from Marshall. Apparently a lot of people hadn't. But I was able to go online uh, through Marshall's website. That's the, the college I'm doing my grad school through. I was able to print that form and get back something like 700 bucks that I had completely forgot about, so... I would remind everybody out there if you are taking if you are taking any schooling um, and you have FAFSA, I'm pretty sure you can um, write off any um, any interest that shows up on your college loans. Especially if you're paying out of pocket, make sure you download if they don't already send it to you your 1098 uh, because that's extra money that you can get back in your pocket that. That the government will just keep if you if you forget about it, they'll gladly keep that money. So, that's something that I found out about recently.
2: Well, I wouldn't. When it comes to the fast, I would mm-hmm. always. I don't like to procrastinate. I would do that early, and then that way, because they always audit me anyway. You have to show proof of your um, your tax returns mm-hmm. and everything. So just to avoid possible delay okay I would do it as early as possible
0: so when you say audit you're referring to tax audit or FAFSA audit are there fa- fast audit oh,
2: okay um, so what what are they what are they auditing you for basically they're uh they're all auditing to make sure that I'm not someone else's dependent okay uh, they audit me about my children that okay. I'm married just
0: to make sure yeah just to make sure that you're that you need the money and stuff okay okay is there anything else, uh, any other general advice you would give to anybody who's who's thinking about uh having to return to school or um, or just got out of a, a particular
2: area of the workforce and is coming back? I uh, just what I've already said. I mean I would I would encourage anybody to do it. Um, I think I think it's the best decision you can make. Uh, I think it's the best thing I've done, it's the turning point of my life. Um, you know. I get to work a job that I enjoy. I mean, you know, computers were a hobby before. I've done it for free, and now they're going to pay me for it, you know.
0: <laughs> I agree. I, I, like knowing, I like knowing when I teach that uh, I basically have a giant sandbox in this classroom, and um, I got 21 computers to play with in my giant sandbox, and they pay me to do it. I, I agree. I, I feel the exact same way.
2: Well, sometimes I I feel a little wrong because I, I go to work, and... and let them pay me mm-hmm. for what I would do at the at, at you know at my house for free. So you know,
0: you can't have it much better than that. Well, Jay, thank you so much for sitting down with me and then talking about your experience and and hopefully giving some advice and enlightening uh, some of the audience about options that are out there for them, no matter where they live. Thank you. Thank you. So I hope everyone enjoyed the interview with Jay Jones. Uh, basically, we really hope this can help you see that maybe there's things about what caused him to come back to school or maybe some things that he talked about even starting school that may you may find relatable to your own life and ultimately we just want to make sure you all can see that it's never too late to come back and retrain those type of things so before we finish up here today i just want to remind everybody that you can go out to our twitter account which is talk on tech mctc leave us any feedback If you find any articles you would like for us to discuss on the podcast, you're more than welcome to tweet those to us as well. And any articles we have talked about on the podcast, you're more than welcome to find the links there. But that's all we're going to do for this week. So I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Have a great week.